Welcome to the podcast service of Sydney's FM 103.2. Available on the web at fm1032.com.au. Last night, we looked at the ridiculous claim of the Da Vinci Code, that Jesus was declared to be God in the flesh only in the 4th century, when the Emperor Constantine uh, decided to blend Christianity with some pagan ideas. As we saw last night, the fact of the matter is Jesus was being praised by Christians as the embodiment of the Lord God, not just in the 4th or 3rd or 2nd century, but even in our earliest New Testament documents, the letters of Paul, written in the early 60s of the 1st century. The same theme is found in the New Testament Gospels. At the simplest level, we could turn to statements in the Gospel of John. In one well-loved passage, Philip, um, one of the apostles, pleads with Jesus for a clear account of God the Father. So we read in John 14, verse 8, Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. We could also turn to the end of John's Gospel, where the doubting Thomas sees the risen Jesus and confesses him as Lord and God. I'm reading from John chapter 20, verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now there are some modern quasi-Christian cults who try to avoid the implication of a passage like this one from John chapter 20. Um, There are the Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, um, whom many of us will have met at our front door at one time or another. They believe Jesus is merely an angelic being, not God at all. So they interpret Thomas's words to Jesus as an exclamation in the presence of Jesus, rather than one directed toward him. They think when Thomas says, my Lord and my God, that it's a kind of, oh my God. Um, Unfortunately for Jehovah's Witnesses, the original Greek of this sentence is absolutely clear. Apen, auto, can only mean said to him. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. It's because of statements like these, along with those in the New Testament hymns I talked about last night, that the Council of Nicaea in the 4th century rejected the idea of Jesus being less than God and reaffirmed their belief that Jesus was of one being with the Father, as the Nicene Creed said in church declares. The New Testament statements pointing to Jesus' oneness with God Number about a dozen by my count. I don't know if you've got a, a pen handy, but if you want to take them down, they are Matthew one twenty three, Matthew twenty eight eighteen to twenty, John one one, John one fourteen, John ten thirty two to thirty eight, John fourteen nine, John twenty twenty seven to twenty nine, Romans eight nine to eleven, one Corinthians eight five to six, two Corinthians thirteen verse fourteen. Philippians 2, 6-11, Colossians 1, 15-20, and Revelation 22, 12-13. Get the podcast if I said that too quickly for you. But I want to conclude this discussion of the New Testament's teaching about Christ's divinity by outlining a more subtle, though perhaps more foundational basis for the early Christian belief that Jesus was in very nature God. It has to do with a topic I talked about a week or so ago. 
Jesus as the temple of God. Without going over the details again, you might recall that Jesus set himself over and in place of the great Jerusalem temple. For Jews, the temple was the locus of God's presence and mercy. And in a huge claim to authority, Jesus cleared the temple of its priestly merchants. And when asked for a sign that he had authority to do such a thing, he replied that he was going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. At which point John's gospel in chapter 2 verse 22 adds, The temple he had spoken of was his body. Jesus is the temple of God. Again, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus compared his disciples to the temple priests and then said of himself, quote, One greater than the temple is here. That's Matthew 12, 6. Equally revealing is the fact that Jesus deliberately usurped the function of the temple whenever he handed out God's forgiveness on his own authority. The religious leaders knew exactly what this implied, and so they protested in, say, Luke 5.21, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? In short, Jesus was a mobile temple, a one-man locus of God's presence and mercy. From the historical point of view, the early worship of Jesus as the embodiment of God probably goes back to Jesus' own daring declaration that he was God's dwelling place, that he was the new temple. Let me quote a British scholar, N.T. Wright. My conclusion from this brief survey of the evidence is that Jesus believed himself called to act as the new temple. When people were in his presence, it was as if they were in the temple. Jesus was claiming, at least implicitly, to be the place where and the means by which Israel's God was at last personally present to and with his people. The doctrine of Christ's full divinity was not a pagan outcome of 4th century politics. It was implied by Jesus himself sung about in the earliest Christian hymns, defended at the Council of Nicaea, and affirmed by all mainstream Christians ever since. Jesus is God. So what are the implications of this amazing idea that Jesus embodied the Almighty? Let me offer an analogy um, based on a true story, and then I'm going to bring this to a close. Some of you may have heard before about a young woman raised in a small town outside Rio de Janeiro in Brazil. Cristina had always longed to experience the bright lights and party atmosphere of Brazil's famous city. But her mum had always warned her off. Unemployment in the city was high and strip joints and brothels were just about the only places offering jobs to young women. Christina, though, didn't listen. One day she packed her bags and secretly took off to the city. Terrified at what might become of her daughter, Christina's mum set out to find her, and she searched in vain throughout the whole city. Fearing the worst, she visited some of Rio's sleaziest establishments, and on the walls of these places she pinned photos of herself. And on the back of each photo she wrote a simple message pleading with her daughter to come home. Well, Christina did eventually find herself employed in a Rio brothel. She was too ashamed to go home, and even if she wanted to, she was unsure what her mum would say, whether her mum would take her back. 
One day, Christina was stumbling down the stairwell of one of these sleazy joints, and when she noticed on the wall a photo of her mother, she took the image and read the message. And in that moment, gazing down at her mother's image, her confusion evaporated. The photo said it all, and she returned home immediately. The doctrine of Christ's divinity declares that God has left a photo of himself in our world. From the 1st to the 21st century, Christians have said that in the life, teaching, miracles, death and resurrection of Jesus, we see God. He is the image of the invisible God, to quote Colossians chapter 1. Christ's life, in other words, clarifies the character and intentions of the Creator. This idea is going to bring comfort to some and a huge challenge to others. For those of us with theological dilemmas and life experiences that have distorted our picture of God, looking to Jesus, the photo of God, can bring the Almighty back into focus. There we can see the Creator in all his grace and gentleness and love. What you see in Jesus is what you get with God. As Jesus himself said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. For millions of people throughout the centuries, this has been an enormous comfort. I hope it is to you as well. But there's also a challenge here. Many people throughout the ages, and perhaps even some of you listening right now, have taken a cherry-picking approach to your idea about God. I'll have a little bit of this, a little bit of that, an adjustment of this, an adjustment of that, and so on. But here's the problem. If God has revealed himself in the life of Jesus Christ, this tendency to pick and choose what we want our image of God to be is little more than wishful thinking. It's a kind of self-flattery. The doctrine of Christ's divinity insists that you and I are not at liberty to fashion a God of our own liking. God has made himself known, and the only appropriate response is to bow before him in reverence and love. We hope you enjoyed this FM 103.2 podcast. To listen to more great audio, visit fm1032.com.au.